This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, part two of Hans Schmidt and Anna Amuller. But first, your true crime headlines. Two Connecticut teenagers were shot and killed by their mother's boyfriend, who then turned the gun on himself. The incident occurred in the Watertown home of Danielle Jett, her children Della, 15, and Sterling, 16, and Danielle Jett's boyfriend, 42-year-old Paul W. Ferguson. Ferguson, who had dated Danielle Jett for around two years, had recently moved into the home. On the day of the shooting, Della Jett and her mother had argued about Ferguson smoking in the house, and as the argument escalated, Ferguson retrieved a Glock handgun from the couple's bedroom and shot Sterling in the leg. As his mother ran downstairs to call 911, Ferguson followed 15-year-old Della to the deck outside, where he shot her in the chest. He then went back inside the house and fired another shot at Sterling, striking him in the chest. Ferguson then closed himself in a bedroom and turned the gun on himself. Both Della and Sterling Jett were rushed to a local hospital where they were pronounced dead. Ferguson, a convicted felon who was not authorized to possess guns, also died. Police reported finding numerous guns at the residence. Police had responded to the same home three years ago when the teen's father, Sterling Jett Sr., shot and killed himself inside the home after a minor domestic dispute. The state of Tennessee has executed 54-year-old Lee Hall, who was condemned to death for the 1991 murder of his ex-girlfriend. He was the sixth prisoner executed in Tennessee since the state resumed executions in August of 2018. Hall's ex-girlfriend, 22-year-old Tracy Crozier was killed when Hall threw a lit container of gasoline into her car as she tried to drive away. The container exploded, leaving Crozier with second- and third-degree burns over 95% of her body. She was rushed to the hospital, where she died the next day. Hall had been on Tennessee's death row since his 1992 conviction. He lost his vision while behind bars from glaucoma, which his attorneys say was improperly treated, and at the time of his execution, he was functionally blind. He is the second blind inmate known to have been executed in the United States since the Supreme Court allowed executions to resume in 1976. Rather than lethal injection, which is Tennessee's preferred method of execution, Hall chose to die by the electric chair, an option allowed to inmates in the state who were convicted of crimes before January 1999. Only six states allow inmates to choose this method, and Tennessee is the only state to have used their electric chair since 2013. Hall was the fourth prisoner to die in the state's electric chair since August 2018. 
State courts in Georgia and Nebraska have declared the electric chair unconstitutional. But the United States Supreme Court has never weighed in on whether use of the electric chair violates the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Inmates who have chosen the electric chair have said they prefer the two massive jolts, which take about 35 seconds, to the state's lethal injection protocol, which can take up to 18 minutes to complete. Hall was among the dozens of death row inmates who sued the state of Tennessee over their lethal injection protocol, calling it unconstitutional torture. George Zimmerman, who shot and killed Trayvon Martin in Florida in 2012, is now suing his victim's parents, their attorney, and others for more than $100 million. Zimmerman, who shot the unarmed black teenager in what he claimed was self-defense, was acquitted of murder and manslaughter charges under Florida's controversial Stand Your Ground laws. Since his acquittal, he has made headlines numerous times for run-ins with the law, including assault and stalking charges. Zimmerman's lawsuit alleges defamation and malicious prosecution and claims a conspiracy by the defendants to present a false witness at Zimmerman's murder trial. The office of Martin family attorney Benjamin Crump released a statement calling Zimmerman's lawsuit unfounded and reckless and accusing him of re-victimizing individuals whose lives were shattered by his own misguided actions. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of Hans Schmidt and Anna Almeler continues. But first, a quick break. Ladies, we all know that size matters. But did you know that shape matters as well? If you've been searching for that perfect fitting bra, Third Love is here to support you. Third Love offers over 80 sizes, including their signature half cup sizes. They know that one size doesn't fit all, and their online fit finder quiz uses data points generated by millions of women to design bras with breast size and shape in mind to help you find the perfect fit, a premium feel, in a style that works best for your shape. The quiz is fun, and it takes less than a minute to complete. I'm a 32B, and my shape is the plunge, and this is the most comfortable, best-fitting, most flattering bra I have ever worn. No more slipping straps, no more underwires cutting into my flesh, and no more itchy labels. Third Love is made using lightweight, super-thin memory foam cups that mold to your unique shape. And Third Love is so sure that you'll love your bra that they offer their perfect fit promise. Wear your bra for 60 days, wash it, and if you don't love it, return it free, and Third Love will give it to a woman in need. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now, they're offering Murder Minute listeners 15% off your first order. Visit thirdlove.com slash minute now to find your perfect fit and get 15% off your first purchase. Returns and exchanges are free and easy, and Third Love's fit stylists are available to answer all of your questions. You're going to love Third Love. Just visit thirdlove.com slash minute for 15% off today. It's that time of year again. No, not the holidays. 
It's engagement season, and it seems like all I see on social media are smiling couples sharing their happy announcements. But did you know that according to a recent Zola survey, 96% of couples say that planning their wedding was stressful, and 86% suffered stress-induced symptoms like insomnia, breakouts, and lower sex drive. Not smiling now, are we? Zola is here to help. Zola makes wedding planning easier and less stressful. With wedding websites and beautiful free design templates, online gift registry, invites, and a guest list manager, all in one place. Create your site in minutes, add a custom URL, password protection, and choose from hundreds of designs for every style. And guests can shop your registry and RSVP all on one beautiful website. Plus, Zola creates beautiful and affordable wedding invitations, all designed to match your website. Stun your guests and ditch the stress. Zola has helped one million couples get married, and they can help you too. Sign up at zola.com slash mm today and use promo code PAPER30 to get 30% off your invites and paper order. That's zola.com slash mm, promo code PAPER30. Congratulations, and hey, happy holidays. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Hans Schmidt and Anna Almuller continues. Hans Schmidt was born in Germany in 1881. His father was Protestant and his mother was Catholic. As a child, Hans became obsessed with Catholic rituals. Known as the Little Priest, Hans fully immersed himself in playing the part complete with cassocks and collar fashioned for him by his mother and even a homemade altar. But with his religious conviction, Hans developed an intense perversion for becoming sexually aroused at the sight of blood. Many afternoons, Hans could be seen at the nearby slaughterhouse, sitting for long hours, mesmerized by the bloody butchering of cows and pigs. When Hans was 18, he entered the seminary. Then at age 24, Hans Schmidt was ordained a priest by Bishop Kirstein on September 23, 1904. The bishop ordained me alone, Schmidt recalled. I do not like to speak of it. The real ordination took place the night before. St. Elizabeth, she ordained me herself. I was praying at my bedside when she appeared to me and said, I ordain you to the priesthood. There was a light during her appearance. I told no one. I thought it best to keep it to myself. They would make fun of me. They always made fun of these things. They always expect others to do as they do. God speaks to different people in different ways. The reason I killed Anna, Schmidt told Father Evers, who was watching in horror, was that St. Elizabeth, who ordained me, told me to give a sacrifice in blood. Why did you throw the parts of the body in the river? Father Evers asked. Because every sacrifice must be consummated in blood and water, Schmidt answered. 
Schmidt spent four years serving in Germany, but disputes with his higher-ups had led to a pattern of confrontation and relocation. Schmidt had had affairs with several women, had molested altar boys, and had a habit of giving eccentric sermons, leading to numerous complaints. In 1908, he was transferred to St. John's Roman Catholic Church in Louisville, Kentucky. But Schmidt bumped heads with the senior pastor there too, and was forced to relocate again to Trenton, and then again from Trenton to St. Boniface Church on the east side of Midtown Manhattan. There, Hans Schmidt met Anna Almuller. At first, Anna resisted the priest's advances, but Schmidt claimed that God had ordered him to love Anna. He told Anna that he would leave the priesthood to be with her. Anna finally surrendered, and the two began having a sexual affair. Inspector Faroe took Schmidt up to his bedroom in the rectory of St. Joseph's and ordered him to get dressed. And the detectives looked over Schmidt's room. Among the items they found were 500 cheaply printed business cards. The cards read, Dr. Emil Moliere, formerly assistant surgeon, Municipal Women's Hospital, Paris, France. Then, at the bottom of the cards, representative of the Chemical Hygienic Manufacturing Company. Schmidt had been posing as a surgeon, fraudulently selling patent medicine preparations. He chose the name Moliere, he said, because it was his mother's maiden name. Also in his room at St. Joseph's Rectory was a marriage license taken out in the names Hans Schmidt and Anna Almuller, dated February 26th, 1913. When detectives asked who performed the secret marriage, Hans Schmidt replied, I'm a priest, and so I married us myself. Once Schmidt was dressed, the inspector and the detectives took him back to the Bradhurst Avenue apartment. There, Schmidt told detectives how he had entered the flat, found Anna sleeping, and killed her by cutting her throat with a 12-inch butcher's knife. He then dragged the body to the bathroom, sawed off her head with a hacksaw, sawed her body in half, and dismembered her. He wrapped each section in a newspaper from August 31st, and put part of her body in one of the pillowcases that had a monogrammed A on it and attached a large piece of the distinctive schist rock to each of the body parts. The work of dismembering Anna's body and wrapping the parts for disposal had taken most of the night, Schmidt said. Early the next morning, he went downstairs, carrying Anna's head, wrapped in paper, and boarded an 8th Avenue car. At 125th Street, he changed to a crosstown car running west. Then he boarded a ferry boat, waited until the boat was midstream, and threw the head overboard. He then returned to the Bradhurst Avenue apartment again and again, 
repeating his trips to dispose of the packages. When night came, he went back to St. Joseph's. Some of the packages were still in the apartment. The next day, he went back early and took away the last of the packages. Schmidt told the detectives that he dropped all of the parcels off the boats in broad daylight, each weighted with a stone. Then, in the late afternoon, he began cleaning the apartment. Some of the blood-stained bedding was too bloody to wash, Schmidt said, so he took it to a vacant lot and burned it. Since that night, Schmidt had continued performing his duties as priest at St. Joseph's Church, even baptizing a child. Around 3 a.m., when Schmidt had finished confessing his story in the apartment, he was taken first to the vacant lot on West 144th Street, where he showed the inspector and detectives the charred bits of bedclothes that he had burned there, and then was taken to the police station. The next day, the janitor of the Bradhurst apartment house, Carlton Brooker, was brought down to the station. Inspector Ferro lined up Hans Schmidt, dressed in a dark blue suit, with four other prisoners taken from their cells for the purpose. Carlton Brooker immediately picked out Schmidt as the man who had rented the apartment where Anna Almuller was murdered. The janitor said that Schmidt came to him on August 25th and paid $5 on the rent. Two days later, Schmidt came back and got the keys, paid the balance of the first month's rent, and then paid an extra $2 to have a special lock placed on the door, saying that he wanted a lock which could not be opened even by the janitor's passkey. That afternoon, the bed and bedding were delivered. The janitor recalled to detectives that Schmidt said, his wife will be here soon. And Anna did arrive that night on August 27th. Hans Schmidt was taken to police headquarters, where he confessed again was fingerprinted and charged for the murder of Anna Almuller. On December 7, 1913, Hans Schmidt's trial began. Though detectives had mountains of evidence and a full and detailed confession, Schmidt's lawyers successfully argued an insanity defense. They claimed that Schmidt's family in Germany had a long history of mental illness and used Schmidt's claims of hearing voices to convince a jury that Hans Schmidt was too mentally unstable to be considered responsible for his actions. The prosecution called in doctors and witnesses who had examined Schmidt while he awaited trial. They testified that Schmidt was perfectly sane and that his claims about hearing voices were nothing but a manipulation. The prosecution's theory was that Hans Schmidt simply murdered Anna when she told him that she was pregnant because the child would have jeopardized his position as a Catholic priest. For 23 days, Schmidt and his lawyers clung to their insanity plea. Two members of the jury, 
believed him, and the trial ended in a hung jury, 10 to 2. Two weeks later, on February 5, 1914, a second trial began. Judge Vernon Davis strongly advised the jury against letting the second trial end like the first. If you are satisfied that the defendant purchased the knife and saw with which he cut up the body, thinking of using them as he did, and if you are satisfied that in the middle of the night he went to the flat, took off his coat and cut her throat, and then cut up her body, what conclusion do you come to? Davis asked the jury. Use your common sense, your experience with men. Bear in mind, it isn't every form of mental unsoundness that excuses a crime. After three hours of deliberation, Hans Schmidt was found guilty of first-degree murder. The priest was sentenced to death and sent to Sing Sing. Schmidt's defense team attempted to appeal and managed to postpone his ex and managed to postpone his execution for a year. But new evidence emerged that threw Father Schmidt's authenticity even as a priest into question. In 1908, Schmidt had been suspended from the priesthood for forging fraudulent educational credentials. He was arrested in Germany and narrowly escaped punishment because he had been declared insane by their courts. With his career as a German priest in shambles, Hans Schmidt made a hasty retreat. And it had been with the financial help of his father and money that he extorted from elderly parishioners that he fled to America. During the search of Schmidt's belongings, the police had uncovered diplomas and recommendations which Schmidt used to establish a connection with the Catholic Church upon his arrival to America. These proved to have been forged. Further investigation also revealed a second apartment where Hans Schmidt had set up a counterfeiting workshop. Inside was a printing press that churned out $10 bills. $240 each in today's money. Hans Schmidt had been running the operation with a second lover, a Manhattan dentist named Ernst Murat. He later said that he had enjoyed him more than Anna. In December of 1914, Schmidt finally admitted that he feigned insanity during his trials. Instead, he claimed that it was his lover who murdered Anna, the dentist, Ernst Moret, and that Schmidt took the fall to protect him. But it was soon clear that this was probably not Hans Schmidt's first murder. Back in Louisville, the body of a nine-year-old girl named Alma Kellner was found buried in the basement of St. John's Parish, Schmidt's first place of employment when he arrived in the United States. The girl had gone missing while Schmidt was there, but a local janitor had been charged with the crime. Her body was found 
dismembered like Anna. Even further back in Schmidt's history, German police connected evidence of a murdered girl in Schmidt's hometown back to him. But the Germans never had a chance to question Hans Schmidt. On February 18, 1916, Hans Schmidt was executed in Sing Sing's electric chair. Father Hans Schmidt was and remains the only priest to ever be executed in the United States. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.